Hi, this is Malia Cromer, director of the Goucher College Poll, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, a source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy viewed favorably by an overwhelming majority of Marylanders. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we've gotten through the holiday season. We are here on Wednesday, January 6th, one week away from the General Assembly convening here in Annapolis. How was your holiday? How is the family doing? How are you doing? What's going on over there where you are? Um, everything's everything's fine here. We uh, you know, brought in the new year. I've been I've been signing off my my notes and and messages with uh, happy no longer 2020, and that feels more accurate than happy new year. So, you know that that old tradition of writing things about the la- the last year and burning them on New Year's Eve. I never really em- embraced that idea, but this year it felt a little more right than usual. So, good riddance to 2020. I'm down for the next year. I think everybody can agree with that. On that note, not not to sound too Seinfeldish here, but how long do you have to say Happy New Year? What is what is the cutoff? Like, if I'm sending an email, how long do I have to say Happy New Year? Right. I. So I mean, don't you feel like for at least a week or so, the first interaction with somebody for the first time of the year involves a Happy New Year? Isn't is it about a week? Does that feel about right? I would that hope is a, so. That is a Seinfeld question, though. That's that's really good. Today on the podcast, we are still socially distanced. Obviously, we had a big spike today in hospitalizations and cases. Michael, the the positivity rate is up, so we're taking the precautions that we need to take. But the General Assembly is scheduled to come to town next Wednesday, and we're going to get in to the 2021 session. We'll talk about what we know, the issues that some of these guidelines and requirements are creating for MAKO and for other stakeholders around town. And then we're going to get into maybe the the big headline that everybody saw over the break. That is property tax assessments, Michael. We know that assessments went up, but we will talk about the real story there. And spoiler alert for everyone, the real story is not what the headline seems. It's not as sexy, but we'll get into all that and break it all down. And then there's also a piece of legislation that has to do with property taxes and assessments that we'll get into as well. But Michael, as I mentioned, we're a week away from session convening. Everybody is going to be coming into town next Wednesday. What are you hearing out there? Can you give our listeners the latest? Do you have any breaking news for anybody? Anything new? Anything changed? I don't think we have breaking news exactly, but um this is definitely going to be a different process than folks like us and most of our listeners are used to. If you're familiar with the 90-day cycle of a General Assembly session in Maryland, then you kind of know that there's a sort of a cadence to it. Is that fair to say that yeah, there, there's a first day yeah. and that's sort of a physical move in and you gavel in, you elect the presiding officers, you do a little housekeeping kind of business. And, and then the 90 day session is characterized by a relatively slow start. 
at least outwardly. There's work getting done. There's a lot of legislators who are working on, on ideas and finishing up ideas and turning them in to bills and getting things drafted and so forth. But that process takes a few weeks and the work on the floor and the work in the various policy committees tends to be pretty light for, I don't know, which is it maybe the first two or three weeks of an ordinary session. It's mm -hmm. kind of a ramp up period. Does that, that, that sound about right to you? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And you're right. People are drafting legislation. They're walking around bills and getting co-sponsors typically. And then the committees are convening. They maybe are hearing some briefings. They're hearing updates. But the bill hearings typically don't start until a few weeks into session. For years, the General Assembly has always said they want to get a quick start, right? They want right. to get bills moving quickly. They want to get everybody to get their bills in. But we know that this year, I think that's very, very likely to happen because we've seen at least 900 pre-filed bills, Michael. And so <laughs> do you think this is the year that they actually come to fruition on getting off to a quick start when it comes to hearing bills? I, I think if you're, if you're using a magic eight ball here, what you're seeing is all signs point to yes. So what I mean by that is you mentioned pre-filed bills. Um, for, for our listeners, that's a process where a delegate or a senator can go to bill drafting and say, I already know, it's only October, it's only December, the session isn't even here yet, but I already know I want to reintroduce this bill from last year, or I have this bill all ready to go, so let me get it submitted in advance of the beginning of the legislative session and just get it, get the wheels turning. Typically, the easiest time, you know, the time that you would do this is a reintroduction of a bill that you did the prior year, but sometimes these are new issues. And we're used to in a normal session seeing, I don't know, maybe 100, 150 mm -hmm. pre-filed mm -hmm. bills. And a lot of them are familiar, you know, oh, this, this, this almost made it last year, made it out of the House, didn't make it out of the Senate, that sort of thing. And so, you know, we always expect there to be some small wave of pre-filed bills, but the clarion call to get your bills in early seems to have been heard loud and clear by both delegates and senators, both parties, leadership and fellowship. Um, we have bills of all stripes who have been submitted as pre-filed bills. They've all got numbers and websites. Um, most of them, we can actually download the actual text, not quite all of them yet, and that's a little puzzling. But I don't know, the gears are turning and lots of these bills we see scheduled for substantive stakeholder input at their bill hearing as soon as January 14th, day two of the session, not two, three weeks in, but literally 24 hours in. Right. And, you know, we've been talking for the last few episodes about what session may look like, and I don't want to bore anybody, but I think we can bring one element in. And we talked about the number of pre-file bills. And Michael, for an advocacy organization like MAKO, we have a process, right? We have a legislative process where we are looking at bills as they're introduced. Those bills go to our legislative committee, which is made up of local elected officials from every jurisdiction. They're the ones who actually decide positions on bills. But because of the testimony deadlines here, Michael, this year you have to have testimony in two days in advance. We've mentioned that all of the bill hearings will be virtual, but that does really put a snag in scheduling, not just for MAKO, but for a lot of folks around town. And, you know, by result, the policy team at MAKO, we've been trying to get through all of these pre-file bills to get them into our system, because as you mentioned, a number of them are scheduled for day two of session. 
no one's going to shed any tears for for you and I and our colleagues who do policy work for Mako, but it's a big adjustment. So I know what your evening looks like tonight, and I know mine looks the same, and that is rifling through a long list of bills and trying to read through them, looking for things that the county governments might benefit from or be concerned about. But we're doing this stuff a week in advance of the legislative session rather than having that crunch come several weeks in. So it's an adjustment in the timetable and our legislative committee will have to convene them before the session has even started to take up several of these bills. It's 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 going to feel weird and that 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 that's fine. Like that's the price we all pay to to try and do this safely and sensibly for the members, for the stakeholders and for proper consideration of, you know, proper process for all these different bills. So we're we're up to the challenge, but it's going to feel weird. I, I think it's still an unknown what what the tempo is going to be for work on the floor of the House and Senate. We've talked about this a little bit, that that's, that's the activity that's governed by the Constitution that says for, for the body itself, for the House of Delegates or for the Maryland Senate to conduct business, they need to have a quorum of their members in the chamber. The Constitution says so. That's the piece you can't mess with. You can't, you know, just suspend the rules and and overlook that. So um, it seems to me that that's the pinch point for process. And we might see less activity on the floor, particularly in the early part of the legislative session than we're used to. So in, you know, in an ordinary year, the, the delegates and senators would be in town all week from Monday night until Friday lunchtime. They'd be in Annapolis with sort of a back and forth pattern between going to the floor for official business on the floor and then back to their committees for bill hearings and briefings and, and that sort of work. There may not be as much work to do on the floor that is timely and urgent. So we might not see the floor convene every day. I think stakeholders like us are going to be we're going to be waiting for the first day of session to hear more uh, more guidance and direction on what we expect the session to look and feel like for the first few weeks. But if it's not on the floor every day, don't be surprised. I agree, and I think there are a lot of moving parts here. I think everything is subject to change as you know they get more information and as maybe issues arise. But if you are looking for preview for the 2021 session on the Conduit Street blog, we have a nice little series of session previews. We ran that over the holiday break. So we'll link that on the show notes. But Michael, let's jump in to property tax assessments. And as yeah. I mentioned in the beginning, this was really the big headline over the break. And the big headline was that SDAT, the State Department of Assessments and Taxation, just finished up their three-year cycle. They assess properties on a three-year cycle, and assessments rose 8.1%. I want to make sure, that's the headline, right? I want to make sure we get that in perspective here. And let me set this up a little bit for you. So when we're talking about assessments in Maryland, we have more than 2 million property accounts, which are split into three groups. Each of those groups is appraised once every three years. As I mentioned, ESTAT provides the assessments. And Michael, I think we've talked about this before. Maryland really does this the right way, right? Because having assessments conducted by the state rather than by counties helps assure taxpayers that the assessing body provides objective and unbiased analysis, right? Counties yeah. do reimburse ESTAT for 50% of the costs related to assessments, and it's been that way since 2013. So 
Michael, I mentioned that assessments went up by 8.1%, but I also mentioned that property accounts are split into three groups. If you see this headline, it sounds pretty sexy, right? It sounds fantastic. It sounds like in spite of the pandemic, property tax assessments are booming, right? But <laughs> let me let you be the bad guy here and break this down and sort of put into perspective, what does this mean when we see this rise in assessments for this three-year cycle? Yeah, I, I think if, if, if you're a person who's generally attuned to, you know, just generally in tune with government budgets and things like that, you, you kind of take note when you see a number that seems way different from what we think of as like the cost of living or, or the rate of inflation, right? These days, that's maybe 2% or thereabouts. So if you see something in the government side that increases by 8%, that sounds like big year. Like if, if income taxes bumped up by 8% year over year, you would have your revenue forecasters say, oh my gosh, this was a crazy year. Marylanders made so much income or, you know, gathered so much, so much uh, stock dividends or, or capital gains or whatnot. We just had a, a crazy boom year in our revenues. Marylanders did great and it showed up in our tax receipts. The headline saying assessments up 8% sure sounds like, boy, there's a boom in properties, but you already laid the groundwork. What you can't do in a headline is give the context. And the important context is we only look at any particular property once every three years in this state. You're right. We've got uniformity in the way we do this place to place in Maryland. It's all being done by professionals who work for the state Department of Assessments and Taxation. So the Garrett County people work for the state and they follow the same basic standards and rules and program that the people who in Worcester County or in Cecil County do. So this is a uniform process, but we look at stuff every three years. When you say the assessment for, you know, that comes out in January of 21 is 8% higher and the assessment for January of 2018, okay, that's a lot less thrilling than an 8% bump. It's not a one-year bump of 8%. It's a collective over three years, and that's a pretty big difference. Right. So if you're a county and you're, and you're out there listening, you shouldn't expect your property tax revenues to increase by 8.1% because, as we've mentioned, the reassessment only covers one-third of, of real property accounts. And furthermore, it's important to mention, too, that when these values increase, that increase is phased in in equal increments over the next three years, right? So whether you're a county government or you're just a homeowner who says, oh, my goodness, my property tax assessment went up by 8.1 percent. I'm going to have to pay more property taxes, but that's great because that means my house is worth a lot more money. Slow your roll just a little bit, right? Again, it's only a third and it's phased in in equal increments over the next three years. And Michael, you mentioned rate of inflation. This is almost equal to, right, right around the range where we'd expect rate of inflation. I think that the yeah. big takeaway here, this is pretty normal. Right. I, th I think that's that's really about it. So, I mean, to if you try to do the numbers, if you own a home that's worth 200000 at its last assessment, and you were about average and you were in this cycle, so you just received a new assessment and your house came in at about 216, right? That would be that would be an 8% jump. Then you're gonna pay property taxes not on 216 right away, but instead it'll be like 205 this year, 210 and a half the next year, and then eventually 216. You won't actually even 
be seeing today's assessment, which was really conducted like sometime over the last calendar year. So the, the 2020 assessment won't even really show up in your property tax bill until what, the, the summer of 2023. So, so this is, I mean, this is, it's a policy decision the state has made that we want to have some continuity and let people have a reasonable expectation of what their property tax bill is going to look like, particularly if you're a homeowner and, you know, you're a, you, you live in the property that you own. Um, there's a bunch of special protections and tax credits, but just the phase in of that assessment amount is itself a built-in protection for taxpayers to keep things from moving too rapidly. It's some stability for local government revenues, but it ends up being, I mean, I guess a matter of tax philosophy. It, it means we end up sort of distorting people's actual tax bill relative to the value of what they own. I don't, I don't think we want to do a 30-minute you know, side, side conversation about the philosophy of property taxes, although, you know, that could be like, that could be for the OnlyFans section, maybe. Yeah, no, we, we could definitely do it. But but yeah, basically, this is, you know, we're, we're going to ease in the hit for you if your if your assessment has gone up. But I guess, Michael, again, the big takeaway here, don't get too excited about this headline. It's important to, to get that context. But, you know, no one's clicking the article if the title is growth in property taxes pretty much at cost of living. Yeah, yawn. So, right. 8% gets me looking. That's fine. We mentioned all these pre-file bills, right? We, we have yeah. a ton of them. In scrolling through this gigantic list, there, there is a bill here that caught my eye, and it has to do with assessments. This is at the request of the State Department of Assessments and Taxation to assess properties on a five-year cycle rather than the three-year cycle that we've just gone through, Michael. Mm. And this would have a number of ramifications, but I mean, Okay, so we've talked about the three-year cycle, what it's designed to do, how it works. If we move to a five-year cycle, I mean, what's your hot take here, Michael, before we jump into this and, and sort of break this down? But going to three to five years, it may not sound like a lot, but it certainly is a big deal for, for a lot of folks. I guess I, I guess um, I would say let's think about this with two policy goals in mind. And I know you've you've read through the bill and thought through this a good deal and, and been in touch with our budget and finance officers, but I'd take a step back and say, like there's two principles that make sense to me in terms of in terms of property taxes. One is you want to have any tax system be fair across those who pay. So your, your ability to pay or the, the item upon which you're being taxed should be accurately reflected in the way the taxes are applied. As a general principle, it's tough to disagree with that as one philosophy, that you, know, you, should, you should pay based on an accurate tax base. And so that's what the assessment is. That's a professional guess at what your home or your property is worth, and you should pay the tax rate based on that. So start with that as concept one. And then concept two is we don't want this to jump around all over the place if the market bumps up or if the market comes down. We don't want things to jump all over the place. So we have these phase-ins and we have these credits to take some of the pressure off what might otherwise be quick movement and particularly for homeowners. So you want accuracy and you want stability and sometimes those two concepts are at odds a little bit. 
But if you buy the idea that accuracy is important, then keep that in mind as, Kevin, you can talk through changing the timetable for how we do assessments. I want to hear what does that mean for the accuracy of, you know, what's the basis for the tax and how correct is it compared to what we know the real value of the properties to be? Right. And, and I think you set that up pretty well. And, you know, I'll say the system is designed and ESTAT, you know, the state always strives to reflect the market value in their assessments. Right. right. And on a three year cycle, I think that that does a pretty good job. But, you know, the more time you add to that process, the less like you, you are to have assessments that relate to the market. Right. And so what that does, I think, from the county government perspective is it puts pressure on tax rates. Right. I mean, if we're looking at four and five year old data when we when we do our assessments and, and again, assessments for our tax base, that means that we may have to raise rates to get the revenue that we need just to sustain the critical services that we provide. So it's super yeah. important that we have up-to-date information so that people are getting not only a fair tax bill, but also that counties are getting the revenue that dictates what those properties are actually worth and to sustain the services that we provide each and every day. You don't want to put pressure on tax rates because you have inaccurate or outdated data. Right. I guess, you know, going back to my example from earlier, if you're the person who has the $200,000 house that just got reassessed at 216, on a certain level, you're like, hey, that's okay. That's pretty cool that I'm only paying on 205 this year and then like 2010, 210 next year. So you, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of a free ride. But if a third of the county is getting the same free ride and then everybody who got assessed last year is getting the same kind of a phase in, then all we've really done is we've artificially reduced the, the basis for everybody's taxes, which means if we have these needs for our schools, if we have these needs for our health department, for our police department, and all the things that county governments need to provide as public services, if we have X dollars we need to raise through the property tax, if we if we tell everybody, well, we're not going to actually tax you on the real value of your home, we know what it is, but we'll take three years to get there, then we're artificially depressing the base, which means there's pressure you know, oh, well, in order to bring in the revenue we need, we need an extra, you know, half a penny or whatever on on the, the, the tax rate to get what we need for, you know, to meet maintenance of effort for the schools and all the obligations for public health and whatnot. So there, there's no there's no free lunch here. Um, I don't want to get into the whole, you know, death and taxes and whatnot. But I mean, that's kind of where we are. This is when you when you artificially depress the tax base. It's not like everybody just gets a free ride. Absolutely. And I mean, let, let's put it this way. Right now, our property tax base is reflective of the 2017 to 2019 market. And again, I think that's reasonable. It's current enough. Would we really want our assessments to be reflective of the economy from 2015 through 2019? We certainly wouldn't want our income tax to be lagged in that way, right? So I think the three-year cycle gets it right. It smooths out the spikes, but it still reflects the underlying market. And I think if you add more time to, to the assessment timeframe, you're just asking for trouble and you're certainly disrupting that balance that we seem to have. We've achieved it pretty well up to this point. So yeah, it, it certainly raises some red flags for me. I understand the intent. I think the intent is to save money on the state side, but 
you know, I, I mean, Michael, I, I guess the, the question is, I mean, where do you tip the scales there? What's more important? And I think personally, it's more important to reflect accurate values. And we need to make sure that we're not putting pressure on tax rates, especially amid a pandemic. We all know the struggles that the state and the counties face when it comes to revenues moving forward because of the pandemic and, you know, all of the, the necessary measures to contain it. So again, property tax revenue is county's biggest revenue source. It also plays a big factor in our debt affordability, you know, because of the debt to the assessable base ratio, the creditors are looking at that. But anything else to add here, you know, philosophically when it comes to this stuff in terms of the three-year assessment versus possibly a five-year assessment? I guess I would say I'm optimistic that the fact that this is introduced in a bill before the General Assembly so that the, the representative government has a say here. I think this is a good thing. So I'm optimistic that rather than this being an administrative decision of an executive branch exclusively, we'll just do it however we want. No, this is actually written in law in state statutes that are governed through the legislative, the representative process. So this bill is going to get assigned to the Ways and Means Committee in the House of Delegates to the Budget and Taxation Committee in the Senate. Those are those are the legislators who have spent time immersed in, in tax policy and thinking about fairness and thinking about process this way. So they're the ones who I think can try and strike that balance. And I'm I'm sure they'll hear an argument that if we only have to reassess properties once every five years, we can do without some staff, we can save a little overhead and so forth. And then they will hear, I'm sure from MAKO, but potentially from other stakeholders, that this will exaggerate the inaccuracies in the way we conduct these taxes. And that's philosophically a bad thing. That's a weakness. So that goes in the on the con argument. You might save a little money. You end up getting bad intel. Is it worth it? And having legislators rather than just, you know, I'm a cost cutter and I'm going to run the agency quicker. Um, I, I think this is the right way to go. So we'll have our say as a stakeholder before the legislative process. And, you know, I, 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 I'm with you. I don't like the moving in the direction of less accurate, you know, a system where we know we're going to be wrong by even more. I don't like going that direction. And I hope the temptation to say, you know, penny, penny wise and pound foolish, I hope we can resist that temptation and, and put this bill to bed. I mentioned earlier that counties pay about 50% of the costs of assessments. And over the past few years, we've seen the governor try and shift even more of that burden onto counties. Typically, that's done through a BRFA bill, which is a, a budget balancing bill that the governor puts in. Any talk about that thus far? I haven't seen anything, but we wouldn't see a BRFA now. It would probably be a little bit later. But, you know, any, any more talk about shifting more of the cost of assessments onto counties? That's something that I know the county community is very plugged in on and is probably anxious to hear if that's something we may see this session, particularly because we know the state is going to be looking to cut costs where they can. Right. Um, I guess the, the only tip-off we we have in hand that's in writing was back in early July. I think it might have even been the 1st of July of 2020. We know that the governor's budget office presented a sort of framework of budget reductions to the Board of Public Works. They're the ones empowered to make mid-year budget changes. And on their framework were a number of things they were asking for votes from the Board of Public Works on immediately, but then there were allusions 
to items that they thought would be coming down the road. So there are a couple things we've talked about on the podcast, but the idea that the Department of Budget Management already had been thinking of a framework for how do we maybe deal with a, a, a state budget that's falling apart um, and that included some, let's say, participation by local governments in cost shifts and, and other such things. I mean, that's the closest we've gotten to a shot across the bow. So, no, we don't have a piece of paper in hand. We don't have a draft bill. We don't have firm word that something like we're going to shift more costs of the assessment offices onto the counties by way of this bill or that bill. We haven't heard that. Um, it wouldn't be a shock if it were to be proposed. But, you know, since July, the short-term revenue picture for the state has at least tentatively uh, gotten better, that the, you know, the, the reliability of our income tax is stronger than we thought. So hopefully it won't happen this year. We don't, we don't relish having that policy debate, but, you know, we're, we're ready to do it if we have to again. Yes, I think it's a good bet. And, you know, and importantly, MAKO has adopted a legislative initiative to protect county budget security. The idea there being that the state shifting costs onto counties who are facing the same problem that the state is when it comes to revenue only exacerbates those problems. It doesn't really fix the issue. So I agree with you that the, the short term revenue picture has certainly brightened up a bit. So hopefully we won't have to have those debates. But we know there's there's a, a looming structural deficit that is going to plague the state for the years to come. So it, it makes sense for them to try and address some budgetary issues now rather than wait. But hopefully this is not one that we have to deal with. Michael, I know I, I would like to say please get some rest before session ramps up. But as you mentioned in the in the intro, I know what your night looks like and you know what my night looks like. I think we'll see another huge drop of bills. I don't think we're out of the woods just because we got through these pre-file bills or we're getting through them, but it's certainly not over. We'll see a lot more bills introduced. It's not just pre-file yeah. bills for this session. Yeah, co-sign that. <laughs> so we'll leave it there so Michael can go read some more of his bills and I can do the same. But as always, you can follow along with the podcast on the Conduit Street blog. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter. We will be back next week, certainly with a recap of the beginning and the opening ceremonies, if you will, of session. But for now, for Michael, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>